welcome once again to the E-Bone Zone as I invite you to sit back, relax, and listen for the 282nd time on this Friday, April 29th, 2022. I hope you enjoy this week's episode, Know Your Rights, Our Exceptional Freedoms. This week, we're going to do something different. If you've studied the First Amendment like I have, you'll realize that it's fairly interesting, and I believe it holds some important rights within it for us as American citizens. So I figure that we'll use our time together this week to cover each aspect of the amendment and learn how it impacts us and why it matters. First up, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Let's cover all the clauses contained within that paragraph one by one, okay? Cool. Firstly, freedom of religion. Let's take a deeper look into that by using the case of Marsh v. Chambers from 1983 as an example. The presiding court looked at whether the Nebraska legislature violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment in its practice of opening each of its sessions with a prayer offered by a chaplain that was paid out of public funds. It was a 6-3 decision, and the court held that the Nebraska legislature's chaplaincy practice does not violate the Establishment Clause. However, in that decision, it looked past the three-pronged test from Lemon v. Kurtzman from 1971, which the practice does not pass, to the long historical custom of the practice dating back to the Continental Congress and the first Congress that framed the Bill of Rights. In the opinion of the majority, Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote, In light of the unambiguous and unbroken history of more than 200 years, there can be no doubt that the practice of opening legislative sessions with prayer has become a part of the fabric of our society. To invoke divine guidance on a public body entrusted with making the laws is not, in these circumstances, an establishment of religion or a step toward establishment. It simply is a tolerable acknowledgement of beliefs widely held among the people of this country. Now we get to my take on this. Considering Marsh versus Chambers in the subject of public prayer, I for one think prayer is an amazing thing. I've seen it work wonders in my life and in the lives of others. I believe that prayer is wonderful in the fact that it's an opportunity to communicate with a holy and sovereign God, our Creator, and that the right to pray should be extended to all people, no matter where or who you are. We move now on to freedom of speech, the second clause in the First Amendment. I did a speech on it a few days ago, and my main point of concern was a man named Ward Churchill and some comments he made concerning the attacks of 9-11. If you're interested, here's how it went. I'm going to be giving a presentation called On the Basis of Free Speech. On the Basis of Free Speech. We're going to be talking about Ward Churchill and his First Amendment case. We're going to be covering A, who he is, B, what he was accused of, and C, why it matters. And before we get into that, we're going to cover the First Amendment as a whole. Of course, we know Amendment 1 to the U.S. Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a a redress of grievances. And freedom of speech, as you can see here, is the issue at play in the Ward-Churchill case. As I mentioned earlier, point one is who is Ward Churchill? This is a background of the man behind the mistakes. 
Ward Churchill was a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and in short, he was fired from his position on in June 2006 over alleged plagiarism. He also was the center of controversy surrounding a paper he was the author of in which he made some egregious comments concerning 9-11 victims, which I will not repeat. The case against him was levied on March 21, 2009. Ward Churchill, as I said before, used some terms for the victims of the 9-11 attacks that initially caused controversy. He said things of the 9-11 victims in his essay that caused some issues, but in his defense to those statements, he argued that he didn't condone terrorism. He said his words, quote, were intended to make the case that even those with innocent roles in a system bear collective responsibility for perpetuating it. Comments caused controversy in several circles, including with Bill O'Reilly, who you might know from Fox News, who said that Ward Churchill was simply a traitor. And point two, what was he accused of? We've already discussed some of that. In the timeline here, we see that he wrote an essay that made reference to a connection between foreign policy and 9-11, which he wasn't originally sued for, but the case went like this. On April 2nd of 2009, it was ruled that Churchill's comments on 9-11 were a substantial reason for his dismissal, and without his comments they argue, that they argued were protected speech under the First Amendment, the board wouldn't have voted for his dismissal. That was interesting. The Board of, Re the board of Regents wouldn't have voted for his dismissal if it wasn't for that paper right there. In September 10th of 2012, the Supreme Court of Colorado upheld a lower court decision, this case went through several phases of courts, in which it was stated that the Board of Regents held immunity, absolute immunity, an absolute right, and their distinction to, deter to terminate former President Churchill based on his actions. And the original essay was written, this shocked me beyond any belief, one day after the 9-11 attacks. The accusation continues. Here's where we get to the, the plagiarism. He was accused of plagiarizing an essay written by Mrs. Faye Cohen. He claimed to be the, quote, rewrite re guy, which in journalism is someone who takes on-the-street information and puts it into a coherent form for a story. And fallout from this is he took two days on the witness stand to defend his position for this plagiarism and to lobby for his job back but obviously that didn't work. And as you can see from here in the second point of the fallout, he was officially dismissed in July of 2007 for work in which he alleged the American military sent smallpox infected, infected blankets to wipe out populations of natives. Now, we come to point three, why it matters. And here's where we get into my opinion on the whole matter. Here's where we get to what I think. Free speech matters, but I believe some things are better left unsaid because the statements you make, even though they're considered free speech, there are things you should say and there are things you shouldn't say. And I would think that 9-11 comments about U.S. foreign policy is something that Ward Churchill should have very well left unsaid, especially not in writing. Once it's out there, you can't get rid of it. It's like posting on the internet. It's same with writing on a paper. You cannot get rid of it once it's out there in the public. And also, it could get you and others in some deep trouble, as we see demonstrated by the Ward Churchill case. I believe that this case is important in the fact that it's caused me to research free speech and the First Amendment more in depth, and therefore I have a better understanding of it. 
Also, I believe people who study First Amendment cases will have a better understanding of their rights as American citizens, and especially for broadcasting, podcasting, where free speech is more upfront. That can give you a better understanding. That can give you a better foothold on what you need to know in order to exercise that right freely and responsibly. I rest my case. Thank you. As I said in that piece, there are things you should say and things you shouldn't say. And if you want more information about what the former professor said that raised so many eyebrows, some articles will be in the description. It, to me, is an example of crossing a big-time line that nobody should touch, and you'll see that if you read more. Next, we come to freedom of the press, and for that we turn to Hazelwood High School in St. Louis, Missouri, in which the Spectrum, the school-sponsored newspaper of Hazelwood East High School, was written and edited by students. That wasn't really a problem until May 1983. Robert E. Reynolds, the school principal, received the page proofs from the May 13th issue. Reynolds found two of the articles in that issue to be inappropriate, and then he ordered the pages on which the articles appeared to be redacted from publication. And then comes the backlash. A student named Kathy Kohlheimer and two other former Hazelwood East students brought the case to court, and in a 5-3 to three decision, the court held that the First Amendment did not require schools to affirmatively promote certain types of student speech. The court held that schools must be able to set high standards for student speech and that schools could refuse to sponsor speech that was inconsistent with the shared values of a civilized social order. Educators didn't offend the First Amendment by exercising editorial control over the content of student speech so long as their actions were reasonably relegated to legitimate concerns. What Principal Reynolds did, pulling out some information from the paper because it was inappropriate, the court held met this test. And now we come to my take on this. I think that freedom of the press is important for everyone, even students. But I think that the key there is responsible freedom of the press which is using it in a way that won't get anyone sued or in serious trouble, because let's not forget, libel is still a thing, and it could go very, very badly for people who A, don't know their rights, and B, don't know what to write and when to write it in a respectful and helpful way. And like I said, there are things you should say and things you shouldn't say. Next is the freedom to gather or the freedom to peacefully assemble. The two parties in this case were a student involved in a demonstration and pickets involved in a labor dispute. They were later convicted of violating a Cincinnati, Ohio ordinance that makes it a criminal offense for three or more people to assemble on any of the sidewalks in that city and therefore conduct themselves in a manner annoying to passers-by. The Ohio Supreme Court upheld the appellant's convictions, but what some justices said was that what annoys some doesn't annoy others. See Exhibit A, the song Baby Shark. It was ruled that the case was constitutionally vague, given what annoys some dozen others, as I mentioned earlier, and it also holds the right of assembly to a standard that couldn't be attained. And lastly, the right to petition government for a redress of grievances, specifically the case of Kings Mall versus Wink. Starting in May 2005, the defendants engaged in protest on numerous occasions at Kings Mall. The defendants, who were veterans of the armed forces, were protesting the government's involvement in Iraq, and they chose to protest at King's Mall because a military recruitment center was located just around the corner. In September 2006, the plaintiffs filed a motion seeking a permanent injunction barring the defendants from the mall. 
The plaintiffs said that the defendants were trespassing, and on November 3rd of that same year, the New York State Supreme Court granted the motion in part. The defendants appealed to the Appellate Division, 3rd Department, and the NYCLU filed an amicus brief in support of the defendants. What these papers argued was, despite the fact that the Supreme Court found the defendants were engaging in constitutionally protected protesting, the court was wrong to limit the defendants' expressive activity. The Supreme Court's injunction could limit speech more than necessary to serve a significant government interest. On July 5th of 2007, the Appellate Division 3rd Department ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. And in the last breaths of the defendant's case, a motion to appeal the decision was made and denied on August 28th of 2007. So from this investigation, we see that the First Amendment goes a whole lot deeper than just, I'm an American and I'll say what I want. It gives you more freedoms than most people realize. It's not just freedom of speech. It's freedom of the press. It's freedom to gather. It's freedom of religion. It's a lot of things that built this country. And I really think that studying it is needed and relevant because I believe that in order to be really in touch with your freedom that you have as an American, you have to know your rights that give you those freedoms. I know I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I'm really glad you could make it, and I hope you enjoyed the festivities. If you want to stay connected to the show, I'd invite you to pop on over to Facebook or Twitter and give the page a follow. Just search Ebone Zone on Facebook and Official EBZ on Twitter. If you're new, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next week, my friend, God bless you, stay humble, and remember, keep an ear out.